Today, it's all about photographing the Milky Way. This is Behind the Shot. Hi, once again, welcome to Behind the Shot, the show where we try and get inside the mind of great photographers by taking a closer look behind one of their shots. From conception to completion, all the stories, challenges, and processes that happen in between. I'm Steve Brazel, your host as always. And I want to remind you that this show has show notes uh, associated with it, as well as a little blurb that I wrote about my guest today. You can find that at BehindTheShot.tv. The show is available in your podcast app, or for that matter, wherever you get your podcasts, in audio format, which virtually every podcast app supports, but also in a video format if you have a podcast app or podcast catcher that supports video. If you don't, you can head on over to Behind the Shot on YouTube and you can get the video format there. Of course, wherever you get this show, please do subscribe, YouTube, podcast, whatever. And as well, please do drop a rating, a thumbs up on the video if you like it, whatever the case might be. And that brings me up to today's guest. And before I bring the guest in, I do want to just kind of say how I met this particular person, because this is the perfect example of why my preferred social media network is Twitter. Twitter to me is the ability to text message people whose phone number you may not have to reach out and give them a 240 character or 280 character, you know, tweet and ask them a question. And you would be surprised how often these people answer. And that's how I met Jeff Harmon. Jeff, how are you, buddy? Doing well. It is so good to see you again in person. We have done this type of thing before for one of your podcasts, which we're going to get into in just a moment. But I've known you now for a couple of years. I love what you do. What's interesting to me, and I should mention to people, you're based in Utah. And is it pronounced Harriman? Harriman, yep. Okay, that's going to come in when we get into the photograph today is where <laughs> right, I want right. to bring that in. Right. But there's something as I was looking through your website. And understand, this Jeff does photography, right? He's got actual clients. But he calls himself a, quote, hobbyist photographer. I don't understand how you do that. <laughs> well, okay. So to me, a pro is someone who makes their entire income from photography. You know, that that's my definition of it. But <laughs> so I, I don't do that. I have a day job. I work in IT during the day. So I, I don't consider myself a professional photographer. I'm doing this for fun. I love it. It's a very passionate hobby, but it's a hobby. And so yeah. it, it's it's all about the fun for me. And I taking people along the ride with me. Like I've been doing podcasting about photography for a long time now. As I was just getting started, as I was just learning myself what, what how to do this. And I'm still learning so much all the time. And just taking people on the road with me as I, I keep going down that path. It's interesting because for somebody who's a hobbyist photographer, you know more about photography than most people that I know out there that are pros. <laughs> and I mentioned at the start how I know you, which is because of Twitter. And and I came to know you through your podcasts. You have a couple of different podcasts. And you also do a number of, of actual blog posts where you go really deep. So let's talk about the podcast for a minute. And then we're going to, by the way, we are going to circle back on, because somebody probably caught it already. It's another photographer that's an IT pro. It's becoming <laughs> right. kind of strange sometimes. <laughs> the Photo Taco Podcast. So Photo Taco Podcast, I've been on before. I was a guest and honored to be a guest. That's a monthly show? 
That is a monthly show. Yep. That's, that's how okay. often I started it out as weekly. Um, and then it just was too much for me to keep up with it every week because I do another weekly show. So, uh, so I've, I've backed that one off to monthly and, uh, it's, I, I want to spend the amount of time I need to, to make it happen. Cause it's a, it's a very technically focused podcast where I do my best to break down topics that are hard for people to understand into terms and uh, uh, describing it in a way that I hope everybody can understand. And, and it takes a lot of time and effort to, to put that together. You bring it to the masses, as it were. That's you, what I try. And that's, that's what was it. We talked about my concert photography when I was on Photo right, Taco Podcast. Right. But that's really kind of a good way to understand it. And that's really where the blog posts come in, too, which I'm going to bring up in a second. First of all, Master Photography Podcast. That one is weekly. Right. And that one was original. I don't know if it still is, though. I'm not clear on that. But it originally was more than just you. Yes. Yeah, there's still a team of us that uh, the whole idea was supposed to be that uh, a few of us would get together every week and just kind of talk about things that are going on in photography or things that we're doing in our uh, businesses or, or what's happening with us in photography. Uh, it was a team of five of us and the others are all busy enough right now with other things that are going on. Some of them have kind of pivoted away. They were all pros and now they've gone to, to uh, not being full-time photographers. Uh, the majority of them. So it's it's kind of turned out to be mostly me on the Master Photography Podcast. Well, and and one of the things I mentioned, let's circling back now to Photo Taco Podcast, is the blog post that you do. Because one of the things I love about what you do is you bring that IT background. I mean, you're, you are rooted in InfoSec, so information security, IT type stuff, yep. uh, which is, again, the number of photographers that I know. <laughs> that have a root in some form of IT, Ant Pruitt, Enterprise IT, and the list goes on and on, is amazing to me. But you kind of bring that, and by the way, I think this is why so many photographers are, you know, IT people. It's a geek world really today, right? I mean, it's this is computers in your hand, whether it be your phone or, or an SLR or mirrorless. But you bring that deep IT background that you've got. And InfoSec, for those people that don't know, is one of the most detailed areas of IT, right? I mean, there's, there's, I could go on and on. But you bring that kind of, of analytical point of view into photography and you go very, very deep on certain topics like performance of external drives, with Lightroom Classic, you've right. got a, a buying guide that you keep up to date. You do how-tos, which you're going to have a blog post on today's image, in fact. Uh, you did this big thing on memory usage in Lightroom where Jeff is going back and forth with people on Twitter and with me trying to figure out how he can monitor performance without having the monitoring affect the performance. I mean, this is the type of detail that I'm talking about. How do you see... Forgetting the blog posts and the podcasts, how do you see your IT stuff affect your actual photography? So I've become a, a massive proponent of the tech, the technical aspects matter. I think there's a lot of photographers who actually never even learn it. They, they don't even know how you know the majority of the menu functions in their camera, what they do, what they mean. 
And it, it contributes to them not getting the shot sometimes because they don't know enough about how their camera works to be able to like actually adjust to whatever they're trying to photograph and they miss it. And then they have to like either reschedule a client or whatever. They have to deal with the fact that like ah, something blew up and I couldn't deal with it. Right. And, and so I, I think because of my, I think that's really been a benefit to me. I understand. And if I don't understand it, boy, I, I dive in and do a ton of testing on it until I do understand it. Then, um, then when something comes up, when something blows up in one of my shoots, I am better prepared to be able to respond to that and be like, Oh, actually I know there's this feature in my camera that I almost never use, but in this case, I need it and I need it right now. And I have less, you know, seconds to be able to make that decision. And, and I think that's really been a massive benefit. And, and it's funny because that's kind of how it affects my photography is it has made it so what to, to where I can operate my camera in the dark and I have sure. to doing concert photography, right? But there's certain areas that I think even hobbyists pros quite often lack and that is the ability to just understand conceptually, right? It's not even the, I know what my shutter does. I know what my ISO does that I see. I know what my aperture does. I, I see the depth of field change. It's understanding conceptually how these things relate to each other, um, what they call reciprocals, so that you're in a dark spot and you realize that at this particular time, your exposure was perfect. You know it's about two stops darker now. Without looking, how do I get two stops back? Understanding those relationships. Right. And I think that's where tech kind of brings it in. But then, but then, I look at what you photograph, which is really interesting to me. Because when you think, when you think IT people, when you think tech photography, I tend to think of, you know, crazy, difficult um, cutting edge, you know, shooting the Aurora, you know, or, or something like that. And you are a very, uh, what I want to call profitable stream, right? A lot of people aren't making money with their Aurora and storm shots, <laughs> <Right>. lightning shots. <laughs> you shoot in a world of photography, moneymaker stuff, portraits, senior pictures, High school sports, engagements, bridles. You do landscapes as well, as we're going to talk about today. So I guess my question is, with it, with as involved as you are in photography, two podcasts, blog posts that you get crazy uh, <laughs> right. about, Facebook, two Facebook groups that you mod or admin, and then you shoot all these different genres. If you were to explain to, if somebody came up to you and said, wow, you do so much in photography. If you were stuck on a desert island and you had one part of photography in your life, what would it be? What is, what is your favorite part of the photographic experience? Boy, what a hard question. I, I think on that desert island, and and it's it's true in all of it. I, the the parts I love the best is getting outdoors, having an adventure, an experience like that has a huge portion into the enjoyment of what I get. And then being out there to capture something or or you know taking in a bit of mother nature 
and working with it. That's my, those are my elements that I get to go and create with. And, uh, and then going back on the computer and, and being able to, to see it all come together. The ones I have the most fun with is when I have this like creative vision of something I wanted to do that involves mother nature, who's totally unpredictable. <laughs> and unless it, you're in Hawaii, at which point right. it's 80 degrees, <laughs> 80 degrees, scattered clouds. Boom. Right. So, uh, you know, doing that, planning it ahead of time, executing, having it work and getting it on the computer going, oh, wow, that that came out exact or better than I had even envisioned it. That that is the funnest thing for me. Yeah. OK, I understand that. And again, what you just described is that IT thing kind of coming through as well. Right. That analytical side. So I want to jump into the photo and I just want to remind people this photo, some some pictures that I have on this show, I always try and describe them for you in case you are listening to the audio version. Some pictures I can't do justice to with with a verbal, you know, rant description. Some pictures, even if you're watching the video, like the recent episode that I did with Alistair Jolly of Flicker and Smug Mug and his Scottish landscape. I'm not even going to try and pronounce the name of the lock that he took a picture of, which is Scottish <laughs> for lake. There was such subtle shadowing and detail in that photo that you could not, no matter how hard you tried, in the in the actual compressed YouTube or podcast video, you couldn't really get all the detail out of it, right? And so I just want to remind you that you can always go to the website, which is behindtheshot.tv, and there you can find all the information that you might need about this show, any other show that I do, all the show notes. I've written a little bit about Jeff up there. I've got all of Jeff's links up there as well. So you can always do that too. So again, just to hit, hit you with the URL again so that you remember it, it's not .com. It's behindtheshot.tv. <laughs> and of course, it's also behind the shot on YouTube. And, and you'll see the lower thirds pop up here underneath Jeff and I as we're talking to give you all those URLs if you're watching the video. But wherever I put the video or the audio, the links are there as well. So that brings us up to today's shot. And I, I said at the beginning, this is all about photographing the Milky Way. Well, Jeff calls this shot Deep Harriman Milky Way because he's in Harriman, Utah. This image, I do want to say, is for sale on Jeff's site. And I have a link for that to Jeff's store where you can buy this shot in the show notes, again, behindtheshot.tv. So with that in mind, here we go. I'm going to try and describe this thing, which I don't know, man. <laughs> it's really hard. I mean, seriously, <laughs> I can say the words Milky Way or the Milky Way, and you get the picture in your head. Here's the thing about the Milky Way, and it's similar to something Jeff and I have been discussing online recently, which is photographing the moon. We here on Earth tend to see through haze no matter where we're at. And so really, we see the moon as this beautiful glowing ball with detail, but there's not a ton of contrast in it. When you process an image, some people tend to leave the moon as we see it from Earth. And it's still super sharp and it's still amazing. It's not as contrasty as other people, right? There's a lot of ways to, to attack it. I tend to try and make it like, what if I were in space? What if what would this look like if I could be above the atmosphere and actually see the moon? And that's what I go for. And when I look at this Milky Way shot, it's kind of the same thing. 
Some people do Milky Ways that have a little bit of color. Some people do Milky Ways that have an insane amount of color. And some people have Milky Ways. The reason this shot leaped at me when, when Jeff posted this on Twitter and on Instagram. Some people have Milky Way shots that look, I'm making this word up in this instance, real, right? We don't see these colors, these gases, this right. dust, space dust from Earth with our naked eye, generally at least. Mm -hmm. It takes some processing to get this type of detail and color out of it. And this is what I imagine it would look like in a Star Trek episode. Right. So let me let me describe it. It's all about the Milky Way. You have rolling green hills of Utah in the front. Those take up about the lower third, but it's dark. And yet, just like that Alistair shot, which is why I brought it up, there's immense detail in these rolling hills. And you may not get that on the video. I understand that. Behindtheshot.tv. Go check it out. <laughs> detail in the rolling hills as they intersect, the shadows get darker and the, and the detail is there. The top two-thirds of the frame are sky, the Milky Way, and the stars. The Milky Way is the right rule of thirds and crosses up to the left top rule of third like it couldn't be more perfectly positioned. The lower left is clearly light pollution from a city or some town center that's creating a, a halo of light above the mountains. Balancing the Milky Way on the right of the frame, the lights on the left of the frame, the stars are all different shapes. But here's the thing, and I think I mentioned this on Twitter, and if I didn't, hopefully those of you that saw the shot caught this, because this I, I almost never see. When you see light pollution blending into a night sky shot where the night sky is black, right? I mean, it's really dark and you get the stars and you get the Milky Way. When you see light pollution blending into that in an sRGB 8-bit image, there's always banding in the sky. Always. Now, you could shoot this and process it Adobe Raw, uh, raw um, or uh, Adobe RGB, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. You could shoot this in a higher bit than 8-bit and do that. But when you export it and put it online at 8-bit sRGB, the banding happens. There is no banding in this shot. I'm not even sure how that's possible <laughs> technological-wise. The other thing is the stars aren't blurred. So I happen to know, and we'll talk about this, this is a multi-shot image stack. I'm not going to tell you if it's two or 400, right? It's, we'll get into that. But it's multi-shots. One of the problem with Milky Ways or any, any night sky, deep sky you know, type image is you get blur of the stars because they're moving extremely quickly. And so you can use apps to find out, but everybody always sees online, oh, the base point is 30 seconds. You can't go over 30 seconds or you'll get light movement. That is not true. It depends on your sensor and your camera. Mm -hmm. So it's very easy to shoot a shot like this and have stars blurred. Not to mention when you shoot more than one and then you stack them, those stars aren't in the exact same spot, you still run the risk of blurs. So we're going to get into this process on how we did this. Last but not least, I mentioned it a second ago, is the colors. The gas and dust that are in the Milky Way, the contrast, 
the the color processing feels space-like. <clears throat> and by the way, the different colors that you see in a Milky Way or, or night sky shot tend to relate to the age of things. So different age stars show blue or red or things like that. But this is what I think the Milky Way would look like if I were in a spaceship. So Jeff, please tell me. Let's start let's start and kind of go through methodically. Okay? Preparation. You knew you wanted to shoot the Milky Way. You said to yourself, "Hmm, Milky Way, I want that." How did you prepare to be in the right spot to know where the Milky Way was to deal with expose what apps did you use? What knowledge and research did you use to prep for this? So the, the first thing I wanted to bring up about that preparation was there's a lot of photographers who, who would look at an image like this and say, I can't get one like that. I live in the middle of some city. <laughs> that's me, by the way. The and, reason That's the reason I haven't shot the Milky Way. Are you telling me I'm wrong? <laughs> uh, because I'm surrounded by terrible light pollution. I live in the southern really? part of the Salt Lake City, Salt Lake Valley, and there is nothing but like huge light pollution around me. The key to it is finding the right time of the year when the Milky Way will be in a direction where there's not as much light. Now, if you're right in the center of you know, in California, that might be, it might be a little more challenging, but, um, this was in the middle. I, I, I went to, I live in that, the foothills of Harriman. Like I said, though, that's in the Southern part of the Salt Lake Valley. So I'm, it's immense light pollution around. So is that what the light is in the back? Is that Salt Lake? That is no, that's South of Salt Lake. So that's a, another pretty big city South of it called Provo. Oh, Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that, that's, that's the lights from there, but it's, uh, I just made sure to plan a time when I could point in the direction in the southwestern part uh, from me is a massive desert. There's huge deserts there where there's nothing. So I know that direction, that little piece of the sky doesn't have the same light pollution. And all I have to do is make sure the Milky Way is in that piece of the sky at the time I want it and the place I want it. And then I just have to be there and then okay. hope, hope clouds aren't there. <laughs> well, yeah, that that too. And here, the Milky Way does not intersect or touch in any way the light pollution that's in the shot. But here's here's my confusion. And again, and this happens often on this show. <laughs> I'm about to sound like an idiot. <laughs> My confusion is, I picture doing a long enough exposure, and we'll get into the settings that you used in a second, but just conceptually, right? Yep. I picture doing a long enough exposure to capture a Milky Way and stars like this, causing part of my scene where the light pollution is to be ridiculously bright. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So if I'm, if I'm in, in essence overexposing to be able to capture that which you can't see, but somewhere else there's actual light that illuminates things that my eye can see, that those are just going to be blown out. And yet here, the light pollution is not blown out. Right. Um, How? How do you capture <laughs> lights from a city making the glow, which we've all seen when you crest a hill on a, on a road trip, right? How do you capture not blow that out but get enough light to get i don't i don't understand it i really don't 
and, and some of it has to do with the stacking process. Some of that, okay. some of it is because of the stacking that uh, allows me to deal with the light pollution. Um, so the post processing has a, a big, big thing to do with it. But back to the planning. I planned the shoot like I do almost all of my landscape shoots. I we've I don't know if you and I have talked about it here, but we're we're all as a hobbyist. I'm super busy. All the, like there's there's so much going on. I can't go like five nights a week and test stuff out and see if it's in the right spot and and maybe I'll find it the next night or the next night. I, I get like maybe one or two shots at it and then I got to move on. I have other things I'm doing or I've got things with my kids or whatever it is. Um, I don't have it. So I, I really have to have it be right <laughs> when I go out there and or I'm not going to get anything. Right. And the only part of the variables here I I feel like I don't have any control over or can know about ahead of time is are there going to be clouds tonight? That that question, you know, there's apps, there's things you can try, but it's mother nature, very unpredictable, and it can just happen. You're like, well, it's not going to work. So, right. I, but I'd at least know that before I head out uh, within like the hour or two before I head out. Like, well, yep, the clouds rolled in, it's over, <laughs> it's not going to happen. But um, but I use Photo Pills is the app that I use. Okay on the phone. It's not a super user-friendly application. Um, there's, it, it takes a little bit of knowledge to figure out how to use it. But when you know how to use it, I can get it so that I know exactly the minute that I need to be at my spot so that I can be ready to take the picture. Of course, I want to get there ahead of that to set up and take some test shots and, and be totally prepared. But I know when I need to be there. And I've learned how to use the app enough that it's that exact for me. I, I know the right. minute <clears throat> that I need to be there. Interesting. Okay, so you get there. Photopill says, hey, Jeff, come on down, right? <laughs> right. You right. show up, what's your gear? So I'm assuming you've got a tripod. Yep. Yeah. Okay. What what camera do you shoot? So uh, this is another thing I really wanted to to kind of make a point of because a lot of people who shoot Astro, they either have a specifically modified camera to shoot right. Astro, or they're at least using a full frame camera. And for a lot of people in my listener group, the the people I'm trying to appeal to and and reach out to is those those hobbyists that are like those are too expensive. I can't afford to have one of those. I still want to do some fun things with photography. Is it even possible? And I want to say, yeah, it's possible. So I shot this with a Canon 80D camera body. And then I used a, a Tokina, no, Tamron, a Tamron 24 to 70 lens. Interesting. So I'm assuming at 24. Uh, yeah, 24. Okay. Yep. And what about, okay, first let's, as long as we got into the lens and body, what were your shutter speed and time on the shots? Because there's multiple shots. We'll talk about that. Yep. But your basic shutter speed, ISO, stuff like that. What were your settings? So this is another area where I use photo pills to make sure I know how to create spot stars, how that, that they won't be moving. Um, you go into the app, and this part of the app is super easy to use. The planning part to know when the Milky Way is going to be in the right spot is a little harder. But there's a pill. They call each of the functions in their app pills. Right. There's a pill that is called Spot Stars. You put in your camera. You put in your lens. You put in your focal length. And it says, okay, um, the traditional 500 rule 
it says this, it's this many seconds. That's not even close to accurate enough today. The, it, you have to account for the sensor size and the pixel size of the sensor. So you have to sp- pick your camera so that it, it can account for that. And then there's another one, the NPR rule is in there, which is a whole bunch of really complicated math that it just makes super simple. And it says, there you go. There's your maximum shutter speed. Don't go over that or the stars are going to look like they're moving. So that's so what I use. So if it says a number, are you willing to hit that number or do you even choose to stay under it? Uh, I, I, I hit that number here. I definitely, I mean, it, it's not, they gave you, they gave me some like uh, I think it was a 13 second shot that I did here. And I think they said the app said it was something like 13.6, whatever, <laughs> so, something seconds. Okay, and so of 13 course you seconds. can't, you can't um, put that on a camera. So yeah, I think I'm pretty sure it was 13 seconds per shot for this image at uh, 24 millimeters. What about uh, aperture and ISO? So the aperture I made as wide open as I could get it. The lens did 2.8. And I would go even wider if I could, but 2.8 was was the aperture on this lens. Okay. And I, ISO, ISO was what again? So ISO, I tried, I'm doing some experiments and I tried two experiments here. I wanted to see, did I get better results at ISO 1600 or ISO 3200? Which, which one do I like better? And knowing that I'm going to stack, I don't have to go higher than that, even though if like if I was going to try to do a single image for this, I'd probably have to go higher than 3200. But I knew I was going to stack and I didn't know ahead of time because I hadn't done a lot with the stacking. Is it going to be better 1600 or 3200? So I took frames of both and I ended up liking the 1600 frames better. Okay, interesting. So then the question is, and by the way, when you're shooting multiple images, Noise isn't necessarily an issue either because you can average out and remove the noise when you have multiple stacks. Shutter release? Hitting the button or do you have a cable or a wireless? I used the interval timer on my camera. Since I'm going to take a whole bunch of shots, I needed to uh, have them go as fast as I could one after the other so that the software has an easier timeline and everything up. Okay. What about focus? So infinity focus is hard. Yeah. When I shoot through a telescope, I can be like, for example, I will find the moon through my telescope's normal eyepiece. Looks great. I can put the camera on and the moon, you can't even see it. It's so out of focus once I add the SLR to the mix. So then getting focus can be difficult there. When you're shooting something like this, what do you do to get focus? And it's even harder because I'm I'm purposely put myself in a spot where I'm in a dark, dark spot. Like I, it's the foothills of Harriman, but I, I hiked a mile into those foothills. So I'm, I'm a little bit away from Harriman as a city. There's still tons of light pollution around me, but the spot I'm in is this pretty dark area. And so, uh, focus, the, the autofocus on the camera is like useless. It, there's not enough light to do autofocus. Uh, certainly well, you can't, couldn't you could, I, I shouldn't say, couldn't you, I guess the question is <laughs> what would happen if you pointed, cause it's pretty far away, right? What would happen if you pointed the camera at the edge of the hill where the light pollution is, you're nodding. So are you about to say that's exactly what you did? <laughs> no. If you focused on the horizon edge of the land, would that get you close? You certainly could do it that way. 
Um, it's still not like to the naked eye. It's not obvious that there's that much light pollution over that hill. It's, it's compounded so much when you do the astro work, it looks like it's intensely bright, but it still really isn't enough to get the focus to pull. So it, the autofocus is not really useful. So what I do is I have a, I bring a, a strong flashlight with me, really powerful flashlight. And I point at the hill in front of me with my flashlight and then I zoom in uh, live view and I manually set the focus. So you did focus on that far hill then? Yeah. Far enough away that the, the lens is at infinity, infinity, but then you're tweaking infinity. Basically. Yeah, I'm making sure I shoot at hyperfocal distance, which again, the PhotoPills app helps me to calculate that um, about where it is. It even has a virtual reality view so you can put your phone up in front of you and click a button and now your camera becomes the virtual reality thing and it, it shows lines out in the field about like, hey, here's the point where you need to focus so that you get hyperfocal distance with your camera, your lens, uh, and your focal length. Okay, so for those that don't know, would you, <laughs> you knew you knew it was coming, right? It's, it's like a courtroom. You introduced it. Uh, explain hyperfocal distance to people. Yep. Okay, so this is a, a point at which you get infinity focus behind your focus point, meaning everything from your focus point, wherever you focused on, and depth-wise in the scene, everything back from there is going to be in sharp focus or acceptably sharp focus. Our eyes will look at that and say, that whole scene is in focus. And then you usually also get a little bit of space, and it just depends on how close the subject is and what aperture you're shooting at, but a little bit of space in front of that focus point also is in acceptably sharp focus. And so uh, so it's really important. I'm shooting at f2.8, but there's still an infinity, there's still a hyperfocal distance at that aperture so that you can get a huge amount of, of space in focus, a, a big depth of field, as long as things are, are far enough away from you right. and you set your focus point correctly. Okay. So I want to talk about your composition because based on photo pills, you knew where it was going to be, but mm -hmm. you couldn't see it. Right. So did you take, you know, I don't care about star trails, but I really need to see details. So I'm going to take one shot at 30 seconds to really get it to where, OK, I know where it's at and then reset to 13. Or, or how did you because the composition here. This shot could fall apart if it weren't for the right composition. Right. I mean, a million right. people have shot the Milky Way like we talked about before. If it was just a shot of a hill in a Milky Way and there was no compositional structure to it, it could be a great shot, but it's not a great shot, right? Yeah, right. But here, the fact that you managed to position something you couldn't see, balance it with the one hill that has the trees on it and the light pollution. And by the way, the fact that that hill's not smooth actually, in my opinion, contributes to the shot because the little trees or whatever it is, bushes, rocks that bump up from the hill, they break the light pollution. Yep. So it's not a blob of of light. So how do you compose this when you can't see it? So I start with photo pills again. <laughs> you can see how big, big a deal this app is. In other um, words, people... <laughs> Just go get it. And by the way, it's on my phone sitting next to me. 
you do have to pay for it. It is a paid app. Yep. It is not a cheap app. It is a cheap app, though, right? Yeah, I mean, let's it's... face it. I remember days when we spent $50 on apps. Yeah. It's not a $50 app, right? You're, it's 10 20 it's bucks, 10 something bucks, yeah. like that. And if mm-hmm. you do this type of photography or any landscape, moon, sunrise, sunset, anything outdoors with photography, you should have photo pills. So I'm sorry, go ahead. I even use photo pills for my planning my senior shoots and family shoots and everything for golden hour so that I know yep. when to tell the family to be there. I don't remember. Does it track tides? I don't, do think, I don't think it tracks tides. I don't okay. I don't know of anywhere that it tracks tides. Uh, well, Eric, Erica Thornis, who was on this show before uh, with a beach silhouette shot, which she's famous for, um, she had a website or an app that tracked tides so that she knew when to go, which was mm-hmm. interesting. Anyway, uh, so okay, composition. So, so composition-wise, again, there's like this virtual reality view to see the the Milky Way rising up over and, and all of the, the things that are in the night sky. You can you can kind of move the time forward and backward in the app with this virtual reality. I guess it's called augmented reality because you see what's in front of you and it overlays on top of it these, these elements. So when I got there on site, I just used the app and I said, okay, the Milky Way should be right there. And based on that is where I picked my spot. I didn't pre-scout. Okay. I I would have, like, I would love to have pre-scouted the spot where I was going to shoot from. And if I could, photo pills, again, would really help me to plan on where I'm going to be. I just knew kind of the general area of where I wanted to be. But to actually pick the final composition, I used that to help me do it. And then I did take a test shot. Like you said, yep, ramped it up to 30 seconds, put it at ISO okay. 3200, take the shot. That was totally a guess. I had <laughs> no idea. I didn't even know that anybody would ever do that. Just as I was talking, I thought, I wonder if he just overexposed it. Went, oh, there it is. Yep. Okay. And then I could see it. And then I make adjustments because it's, you know, not exactly how we wanted it initially. So change a few things, make some adjustments, pull the focus, make sure I got all of that well. And then I'm ready to roll and, and take my, my shots. Okay. So now let's get into uh, the part that I think most people want to know. How many shots? Okay, so this the application that I'm using is called Sequator. Um, it's a Windows application that's free, which is really cool. But it is Windows and, and only. I should mention to people, Sequator is not available on the Mac. It is Windows only, like Windows Jeff only. said. But the most popular Mac alternative, if you look at any of the reviews and blog posts is a $40 application called Starry Landscape Stacker. Right. And supposed to be, and a lot of people like it better than Sequator, but that one is Mac only. Right. And it's $40, right? right. So, but I mean, how many, when you were in the field, how many photos did you take? So uh, bef- how many stacks did you right. take? Beforehand, I looked at the app just to see like, what's the manual say? What does it say you should get? How many images? And I'm really glad I did because I wouldn't have known to do what I did. So um, I did oh. that. Plus, plus I searched like what order people doing when they when they create these images. And what I came to was I need to take 40 images. I'm going to do wow. 40, 40 images and I need to take negative images, which is an image with your lens cap on. And I'm going to do two negative images. You start with a negative image before your 40 shots to kind of capture what the hot pixels in the camera from the sensor look like before you start shooting. Before you start. Then you take your 40 shots as fast as you can get through them, of course. And then you take another negative image to capture what the hot pixels looked like at the end of the shoot. 
at the end of your 40 shots. Okay. So, so let me, let me, let me dissect this. <laughs> the negative images, you've got one when you first, I'm not going to say first turn on the camera, but for sake of argument, you haven't shot a bunch of shots yet. Heat should be less. There should be less hot pixels at the end of 40 shots. There should be more hot pixels. Those two negative shots, meaning with the cap on they're pure black in theory, but not, those are going to be used for noise reduction, yep. uh, in the final product. But you said that you took 40 images to, to get this particular shot that we're talking about today. And I just pulled up the wrong screen. So let me jump up to that. <laughs> um, I'll fix that in post. I'll be, I'll, I'm going to leave the words in. So people go, I don't see what he messed up. <laughs> um, but you took 40 images to take this shot, including the two negatives. But, and, and the app said 40. Here's where I'm confused, though, because 40 images, no matter how fast you took them. So, for example, your intervalometer, how often were they taking? So the exposure, the shutter speed's 13 seconds. So I put it at 15 seconds for the interval just to make sure it had enough time to write the images the image out to the memory card before taking the the next shot. Okay, so that's key though, because that means, I'm not even going to talk about the 13 second images, right? Let's just talk about the fact that in between each shot, there's two seconds Mm -hmm. of wasted time not shooting Mm -hmm. times 40, right? So you're, I'm just going to round it. You're a minute and a half of not shooting time plus 13 seconds times 40. These stars aren't in the same spot. No. And here's what's interesting to me is they also technically would not be in the same. It's one thing if the whole sky moved in conjunction with each other, because then you can align everything. But I mean, in theory, based on distance and perspective, even though they're very far away, and maybe that's the whole key is that you can't perceive the difference I'm going to mention here. But in theory, they are not moving in relation to each other. So the Milky Way itself could move theoretically more than that one singular bright star, which makes aligning more difficult, right? I mean, the app's going to do it all, right? Yeah, the app handles all of that piece of it. You can do that manually. You can go into Photoshop. And and you're right. These things don't all move at the same rate, but they're close enough. I mean, it's not one piece, right? Right. (laughs) But they're, they're close enough that for the purposes of what we're doing here, it, it matches up pretty good so it, it it works to to have it work that way um and and it it's something where so it ended up being 10 minutes you you wait you know it does 10 minutes of shots and i'm just twiddling my thumbs for 10, 10 minutes as it goes i also wanted to mention you, you said like do you first turn your camera on i'm very cognizant of heat is an enemy to this heat really is a problem so the longer your sensor's on the worse those pixels become, those hot pixels become. So I got the shot set up and then I shut the camera off and I waited for 15 minutes for that sensor to cool down as much as I could get it to cool down before I turned it on, took my negative image and then put it on the interval timer and started and, and had it all go as fast as I possibly could. Interesting. Okay, so so let's talk really quick to close this out. Your workflow. You come back. Uh, I understand you probably did more than one sequence, right? right? But right. let's just pretend it's a single sequence yep. of what is theoretically 42 images. Correct. Two negative shots, 40 images. Yep. You come back. Do you import those images to the computer and process each one before blending? Do you blend 
and then process the end result. What is what is that process? So the manual for the software, which I bet most people don't read, <laughs> says yeah. says uh, just feed it the raw images. So that's what I did. I, it knows how to read a CR2 file, which is what comes out of the Canon ADD. It may it do, it probably does not support all raw files, so you you may have to do something a little different. It's it for sure supports JPEG and TIFF. So if you had to, you could convert them. Just do a straight up conversion from raw to TIFF or JPEG if you needed to. But it took CR2 files, so I just dumped my CR2 files in. You you uh, drag in the 40 images first, like the normal ones. And it says, are these star images or these negative images? You can even go a step further and take something they call vignette images, which allows the software to account for vignetting that happens in the lens. From the, so it's a lens profile, basically. Right. Basically generates a profile. Yeah, considers that as part of it. But I didn't do that. So, um, so I dropped in the 40 images and it defaults to like, these are star images. And then I dropped in the two, just drag and drop the two and negative images in. And now it defaults to, I think you're putting in the negative images. And I said, yep, that's what I'm doing. And then you, you do have a ton of options in the software that I had to go through and do a lot of testing on to see like, what do I want to enable, disable in these options? And it has recommendations in the manuals about what to do. And, um, but you know, I tried different combinations and I don't think it's something I could really like say here's the recipe because I think it's going to depend on what you're shooting about what the best settings. But I mean, are did you be. stay with the defaults? No, no. I I went and there's a there were a bunch of things that um, aren't on by default. Um, that uh, there's a checkbox to say try to limit the light pollution, for example, and that's not on by default. So I tried it with and without, and I'm pretty sure I liked it better with, and just okay. all of that. I, I tried it. It only takes about a minute and a half for the software to do the blend. So it's not that really? hard. Yeah. <laughs> 40 images plus two negatives in a minute and a half. Yep. Yep. And so yeah, but you've got a beast of a machine. I know. you. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, it's a machine I built in 2014. Baselines matter, my friend. I built the machine in 2014. It's six years old. So, okay. All right. <laughs> so I guess, I guess the question is, is somebody gets sequator or, you know, the, the, the Mac equivalent to this particular piece of software, Starry Landscape uh, Stacker, and there's other ones out there that you can try as well. Right. And they decide, I'm going to go do this, right? If you could save them time with one tip, what would that one tip be? Um, you really have to make sure the shutter speed is slow enough. I mean, fast enough, I guess I should say. Don't go slower than the shutter speed the camera says. Trust or the, photo pills. The app, yeah. T really trust photo pills. You you got to be under that limit. Um, it can be like right up to the limit, but you can't go faster. The stars really start moving, especially at the edges of the frame. That's where it really shows up is in the edges. Well, and then again, don't... The internet's a great thing. Don't misunderstand me. I love it. But... There is no one fast rule for everybody. So for me, when I was considering doing a Milky Way shot a long time ago, and for some reason, I don't remember why it, it, it never came to fruition, but I saw everywhere 30 seconds. Don't go over 30 seconds. I'm thinking, <laughs> okay, I'll go less than 30 seconds. Depending on the body I was using, which at the time I think might've been a Canon 7D, that would have been an absolute problem. I would have gotten star trails. Yes. So yes, these rules exist, but your better bet, nowadays is just use an app 
I mean, it just makes it so much easier. Oh, yeah, for um, sure. Again, your tech background, to me, informs the process in such a way that I just, I love it. I just, it's it's exciting to me to see how people are, I mean, again, pushing the boundaries may not be the right term here because a lot of people photograph the Milky Way, but understanding how anybody can go get photo pills, get an app like Sequator, read the book. That's it. Just read the manual, read the instructions and end up with a product at the end of all of this that looks like this thing. <laughs> it's like, wow. Oh, you know what? I almost forgot. I was going to close out. And I almost forgot. Sequator did it. What'd you do afterwards? Ah, yes. That's not the end state for sure. Um, okay. So as you're blending these and images, somebody, by the way, would have said, Steve, you didn't ask him about Photoshop. <laughs> right. But, right. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Right. So you're stacking these 40 images and the software's job, Sequator's job or deep sky stacker, it's going to line up the stars. The, that means the foreground is going to become this blurry mess that's not usable at all. So for sure, if you're planning to do stacking, you are also planning to do a composite in Photoshop. You have to to get that foreground back. And then your challenge is, how do I get that foreground to look natural <laughs> and like it was when I was there? And that that can be really challenging. But so I, I, I bring in... Uh, I brought in the final image. So Sequator produced a TIFF for me. Really good, high-quality TIFF file. And then I bring that TIFF in. In fact, you can even have the color space. Um, I was using the Adobe RGB color space when I shot. And I set the um, color space in Sequator to Adobe RGB. So that Okay, I had, so you've got a better color gamut. I had a big color gamut uh, available to me when I was processing this. So then I bring it into to, uh, Lightroom first. And I did some minor things there. I like the way I can do noise reduction in Lightroom really well. So I, I liked to do that there. But I also used Dehaze as a slider helped tremendously with this image. It really brought on, out on the, the stars. Whole image? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I edited the two images separately, the stars, the sky versus the foreground, kind of edit them separately in Lightroom and then just bring in both images after I've, I've made adjustments in Lightroom as layers into Photoshop to put them together. So and, uh, hold on, let me, let me get this right. Sequator produces a single TIFF that is the blend. Yes, for the sky. You duplicated mm -hmm. that? And no, processed one copy for the sky and one for the land? No, because the, the, the TIFF file is going to have a really nice and sharp, clear version of the sky area. But the foreground area is this blurry oh, mess. I see what you mean. Right? You brought in the 40th image yes, for the land. That's oh, okay, right. I understand. Well, Actually, because the the ISO got worse as you get shooting, I brought in the first image okay, for the foreground gotcha. and uh, and used that. So yeah, could you not have also just shot your own manual plate exposing it the way you wanted? Actually, um, I took a thirty second. I had that test shot right, thirty second test shot. I think that's the one that I used for the foreground. Ah, I don't go. care how the skies are moving. Exactly. So I, I brought in as much light as I possibly could and lowered the ISO as much as I could to make that as noise-free as possible. I like it. I like it. Okay. So 
And in Photoshop, what would you have done, I'm guessing? Yeah, so and then Photoshop, uh, you could try to do, I, I did need to still add some contrast to the sky. It doesn't look as stark a contrast between the Milky Way and the back, the black of the sky, um, even up to this point in Lightroom. You can kind of get there with uh, adjustment brushes and contrast slider and dehaze, and, and you can get sort of there, but it's much better just to use curves in Photoshop and fine tune that um, the contrast so that it looks just how I want it with the sky. And then because there are two layers, I can make it so that I, I deal with the contrast in the foreground completely independently, make it be exactly how I want it and, and have it work. The, one of the, the things that I did in this shot that I think really helped the composite look natural, I took color from the sky and I overlaid that color on the foreground to make sure that I had color matching happening on on the foreground. Okay, which is a very common compositing thing that yep. that the Aaron Lewis is uh, Aaron Lewis. I'm thinking singer now. Aaron Nace's Aaron Nace, yep. uh, of the world will tell you. Aaron Nace is, is the founder of Flurn. By the way, if you've never gone to Flurn, highly oh recommended. Yes. I actually even have a uh, a discount code for Flurn. By the way, which is on the screen right now. It's behind the shot twenty. Uh, so if you do go to Flurn, use that code. That'll get you 20% off a, a, a membership at Flurn, which is one of the best training spots. So, okay, very, very interesting. You end up with a shot like this. And again, people, this is for sale on Jeff's website. I've got the link in the show notes to this, and I'm going to give out all of Jeff's links here in just a minute. But if you're watching the video, they are popping up underneath him as we go. Last question. If you could recommend one photographer to people that people don't know about, who would it be? That people don't know about. I mean, I you're a photographer pick. <laughs> I think the people that I follow are the ones everyone follows. So I, there's that. <laughs> hey, who's your favorite photographer then? The the favorite one for for landscapes like this, I think, is probably Nick Page. Okay. Yeah. So go look up Nick Page and uh, Jeff again. Thank you so much for doing this. All the information on this episode is at the website, BehindTheShot.tv. Make sure you go check there. And for Jeff's links, let's run through these really quick. What's your actual website? Okay, so my portfolio is over at JSHarmanPhotos.com. Okay, JSHarmanPhotos.com. Uh, the two podcast sites. Yep. Uh, phototacopodcast.com is the monthly show and where I have my detailed blogs, which I'm going to do a detailed blog about this. First, I'm going to compare how it does with Deep Sky Stacker versus Sequator. And uh, and I'm also going to That'll do be interesting. Okay. a few more shots uh, to figure out like uh, ISO settings and how many images actually matter. And, and so I, I have a little bit more testing that I want to do before I go and, and release that blog post. But it's going to be a, a big blog post with lots of detail. <laughs> yeah, actually, it's good to me. The interesting thing will be comparing the $40 app to the free app. Even if the $40 app is better, let's say, it's $40 compared to free, but uh, I am I use Mac and Windows myself, but all my editing I do on a Mac. So your social media stuff is going to be hard to say all three of them. They're in the blog post. They are always a format of last name, something, first name. So right. Facebook, Harmon.Jeff. Twitter is Harmon underscore Jeff. And uh, Instagram is just Harmon Jeff. So 
if you look for Harmon followed by something and a Jeff, you'll you'll most likely find Jeff. There are uh, too many of us Jeff Harmons, and I'm never first to the game. So, and therein lies the issue. Yeah, uh, dude, I can't say thank you enough. I really, really appreciate it. Uh, for everybody, go check out Jeff's stuff, and and I hope that you and the family and everybody in Utah are safe, my friend. You too. Thanks, Steve. Yeah. Uh, thanks again to to my guest Jeff Harmon. That see, I I was so excited all week long knowing I was going to have Jeff on, because it the the process behind this to me is just what makes it fascinating. And then when you see the process, when you see the apps in use, and you realize that you could go out right. I mean, not right now because it may be noon where you are, right? But you could go out, you know, air quotes right now. And capture a shot like this, regardless of whether you've got a small kit camera lens, you can do it. Go give it a try. Just get out there and just have some fun and and go shooting. I just absolutely love that. Again, this is Behind the Shot, the show where we try and get inside the mind of great photographers like Jeff Harmon to understand their process, to understand why they make the choices that they do and how they get the amazing artwork that they do. As always, blog post associated with this episode, you'll find it over at BehindTheShot.tv. You can find me online, Steve Brazel, on Twitter or Instagram, or it's uh, BehindTheShotTV on Twitter or Instagram for the podcast. I'm on Facebook as well. I don't use it nearly as much. If you want to participate in the critique shows that I'm doing with Don Komarechka, we do those usually once a month. And if you want to submit an image, all you have to do is go over to Flickr and join the Behind the Shot Flickr group. It can be a free Flickr account. Once you remember, you can submit images to the group all you want. We're not going to critique them. You're not in any danger. You're not at risk, right? But if you want your image in the pool that we choose from for the critique shows, all you have to do is add the Flickr tag, BTS Critique. That's your explicit way of saying I'm willing to have this image critiqued. And then it's in the pool that we pick from. And to everybody, thank you so much. Thanks again to my guest, Jeff Harmon, today, Photo Taco Podcast, Master Photography Podcast. I'm Steve Brazel, your host. And as always, we will see you on the next show. 